Time for short play. Alex, after nearly 50 years as senior pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta, Dr. Charles Stanley is stepping down. Quite the legacy, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it seems that though Stanley is not retiring, he did want to free up whatever time he had left this year for some recreation and games. Uh, One interview noted that he needed either an alien invasion or a civil war, and that would complete his 2020 bingo card. (laughs) Old people like bingo, I don't know. (laughs) That they do. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Open your Bibles. Read 1 Peter. Come back and join us as we go through verse by verse, asking important questions and doing quite a bit of swordplay. So, Nick, we are going to start off with uh, the heavy the heavy stuff, okay? Verse Might as well two. get it out of the way early. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we have uh, this statement by Peter about foreknowledge, and we need to uh, look at for a second how should the phrase chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father be understood in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Yeah, so foreknowledge. And and by the way, can't get enough of my explanation. I've been working through the book of Romans, and the last couple few weeks we have been talking about Romans 8 and 9 here at Davis Park in our Wednesday night Bible class. Those videos are available on YouTube. Just search Davis Park Church of Christ if you want to see me spin out on this stuff even more. But uh, this is a very, uh, it can be, a, a very deep subject, and I guess I'll defend kind of the classical position, the, the, the uh, classical theologian position from yesteryear, and Alex is going to come at it from a different perspective, uh, which is relatively new, but... Uh, Anyway, well, there are some there are some ancient theologians who believe similar to what I'm going to say, so it's it's not brand new. <laughs> but it's it's gaining it's gained traction in recent decades uh, with guys like uh, Boyd Sanders, uh, what White. Um, so, all right, God's foreknowledge for me, God's foreknowledge is linked to God's knowledge. What does God know? And the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, affirm God knows everything. First uh, John 3 and verse 20 states that principle explicitly. Uh, Psalm 147 and verse 5 says, His understanding is beyond measure. The New American Standard says infinite. So God's understanding, infinite. And uh, in Job 37 and verse 16 it says, God is perfect in knowledge. And such statements of God's perfect and limitless knowledge are rooted in God's nature. The expanse of God's knowledge begins with God himself. And God is full of knowledge of himself. He has full knowledge of himself. Romans 8 and verse 27 says, He who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. That is, God the Father knows fully the mind of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
And similarly, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And unlike a human search, which is limited and incomplete, God, the Holy Spirit's search of the depths of God, is instantaneous and complete. Nothing in God is hidden from God. And since God is the eternal God, whose being and essence is eternal, and by eternal we mean limitless, we mean infinite, and since he fully knows himself, his knowledge must be limitless and infinite. And also, since God, who is infinite, knows himself fully, he cannot not know everything else, which is finite. And since God knows everything, I think it's a a small step to, well, God knew everything beforehand. And this is so because God knows everything past, present, and future. As it respects time, he knows everything from creation to consummation. From let there be light to God will be all in all, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. God knows everything. All time and space stand open and available to him as an eternal now. So God knows the past, even the creation, when no human saw his work. How else could Moses know and record the creation account except he received such knowledge from God who did it? God knows the present. In Hebrews 4 and verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows all creatures. He knows all their actions, both good and bad. He knows all their thoughts, both good and bad. And then also God knows the future. And I like what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. So, all right. That's a very brief overview. What does it mean? How do we bring it to bear on 1 Peter 1 and verse 2? What does it mean here? Well, uh, I like what Wayne Grudem suggests about uh, this, that the whole phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That, that whole phrase is intended to uh, go together. And so they are elect exiles in Asia Minor according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, and even their hostile environment in Asia Minor were all known by God before the world began and all came about in accordance with his foreknowledge. And thus, we may conclude, all are in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. For Christians living under empire, a hostile empire, for Christians living behind enemy lines, I am confident it would have brought peace of mind to know everything is under the control of their loving Father. Nothing was left to chance. And similarly, to bring some stuff across the bridge for us today, siblings, we are elect exiles right now where we live. And that is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is no accident that you live where you live, that we are sojourners on this earth, that we are the chosen people of God. It is God who foreknew and therefore determined allotted periods and boundaries, as Paul says in Acts 17, 
verses 26 and 27. He determined where we would live in order that we would have the best opportunity to seek him out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Uh, So that's my take, again, in line with kind of a a classical understanding. Uh, Alex, there's a different way of looking at this, isn't there? Yeah, and I will say that we're going to get into it a little bit now. We're going to expand upon this more at the end of the chapter when we get to um, verse 20. And even then, we will not have completely covered anything but just the tip of the iceberg, right? (laughs) (laughs) So here's here's where I'll start and, uh, you know, sit down, have an open mind, entertain an idea without accepting it, right? God does not know all things. Now, before I re-examine the verses that Nick cited, and which many people quote in support of the traditional understanding of what's called omniscience, I would like to point out some other familiar passages that should at least give one pause before we start defining God through certain philosophical constructs. So first, God does show genuine regret at times. Right? For example, Genesis 6 6, God showed genuine regret at having created man on the earth. Another example, 1 Samuel 15 11, God showed genuine regret having made Saul king of Israel. Someone with complete foreknowledge of every single person and event cannot show true regret or surprise. This is where both predestination and foreknowledge positions have to start inserting ad hoc sophistry in order to undo the damage they've done to the text by stating that God didn't really regret what he said he regretted. God even shows regret with saving Israel from Egyptian bondage. Remember the golden calf incident? After that happens, Exodus 32 verse 10 and following says that he wanted to destroy Israel. He wanted to start over again, this time with Moses. And then something unthinkable happens if we're looking at an unchanging God who foreknows all events. It says that Moses changes God's mind in verse 14. It is the assumption that God can and does change his mind that makes Jonah so angry at God, having avoided Nineveh on the chance that God would change his mind concerning their destruction. The people of Nineveh repent for that very reason, Who knows? God may turn and relent, says the king of Nineveh. Jonah didn't tell them to repent. He just told them that destruction comes in 40 days. Let's go back to Genesis for a second. When God comes down with two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, looking at Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21, that records God saying that he has come down to see if they, Sodom and Gomorrah, have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. If not, I will know. Well, that's a strange thing to say for someone who's already supposed to know everything. Back to the Exodus. Why did God lead them out the long way? The Israelites being led out of Egypt, why the long way? Why not the quick way? Sermons abound, which say God leads us the long way so that we'll learn to trust him. It's part of his mysterious working. 
But why don't people ever quote Exodus 13, verse 17? It's not mysterious at all. God says that the people might change their minds when they see war and they'll return to Egypt. They might change their minds? Isn't God supposed to already know? Now, I'm confident and I'm glad to say that God knows more than any other mind in all of creation. I'm confident and I'm glad to say that nobody's ever going to know as much as God knows. But there are many examples which defy our definitions of God knowing all things future to an exact and minute detail, this idea of omniscience. Regarding the verses that say God knows everything, I appeal to the context in which those statements are made. We know from other verses that all things doesn't mean everything, ever, but does have a limited range based on the topic at hand. For example, when the Spirit is promised to teach the apostles all things in John 14, 26, we don't go assuming that that included knowledge about combustion engines, but rather all things concerning the teachings of Christ and the gospel, because that's what the context demands. In 1 John three twenty, God knows all things concerning our hearts. It's the heart that's at topic. God does have an intimate knowledge of what we have done and who we are in our hearts. This may put God in an extremely reliable position to predict what one may may do or not do, but that's not the same thing as traditional omniscience. God's knowledge is infinite and without measure, Psalm 147 verse 5. Great! I think that's a beautiful line set within a beautiful poem. Does that tell us that he has minute details about every future occurrence or that he lives outside of time? Or does it tell us that God knows so much that we can't quantify his knowledge? I vote the latter. I agree. We can't quantify God's knowledge. He surely knows the most. But that's not the same thing as predestination or foreknowledge of all future minutiae. So what does it all mean for 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, from my perspective, right? It means that the foreknowledge Peter mentions should be understood by the topic Peter has in mind, which seems to primarily be the topic of suffering. Was the suffering of Christians foreknown by God? Absolutely. Jesus told his followers several times that they would suffer, that they should count the cost of their discipleship. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 11-12. How did Jesus know they would be persecuted? By stepping outside of time? I don't think so. Actually, it was by looking at the past. He says, the prophets of old who are persecuted. Jesus says this will predict how evil people will receive the truth delivered by his disciples. By responding with persecution. So, they will make you outcast, Jesus said. Outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. John 16, verse 2. How did Jesus know this? By stepping outside of time? No. It was by looking at what was already happening in the present, in his own day. People were already fearing being kicked out of the synagogue. That kind of thing was already occurring. 
Go back to John 9, verse 22, John 12, verse 42. And if they are in the moment seeking to kill Jesus, it doesn't take divine foreknowledge to know that the disciples will eventually be killed too. The audience of 1 Peter, they are exiles because of persecution and suffering. By becoming a Christian in the day and time in which they lived, that put them into a group that has been chosen by God to suffer for righteousness' sake. God foreknew that the first fruits of Christ would have to suffer, just as Jesus warned them. You don't throw down the gauntlet against the ruler of this world and expect the powers of darkness to not retaliate. Their suffering is a sacred suffering. Their suffering is an obedient suffering. They knew what they signed up for. So that's my, that's my reading of 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, and my brief, right? I know it didn't sound brief, but as brief as I can put it right now, commentary on foreknowledge in general, right? So there's foreknowledge in general, which can get very philosophic, but then there's also foreknowledge in context of 1 Peter 1. And I tried to touch on both of those. So here's the thing. <laughs> We're going to come back to this again. And we're going to comment more at the end of chapter one. So hold these, hold these thoughts in the back of your mind and as we work through some more of these verses. So Nick, verse two has another interesting phrase, right? We looked at the foreknowledge, but that's connected to as well the sanctifying work of the Spirit. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what is meant by the sanctifying work of the Spirit in verse two? Yeah, literally in holiness of spirit. Um, and so John Brown, uh, a, a Puritan writer from way back when, in his expository discourses on First Peter, argues that due to the lack of the definite article, the, doesn't say in the sanctification or in, in the sanctifying work of the spirit, it just says in holiness of spirit, since there's no definite article, this should be understood as spiritual separation. Uh, and this is a minority position, and I believe that Peter does intend, on the other hand, for his readers to recognize the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, despite the lack of definite article. And that's because of the Trinitarian formula of this introduction. It's the foreknowledge of God the Father. You have the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and you also have obedience to Jesus Christ, who is the Son. So the Father foreknows Christ, the Son, sprinkles with his blood, and right in the middle, sandwiched between those, is the Spirit who sanctifies us. Now, typically, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is understood as a progressive work done throughout our lifetime. In this context, though, the emphasis is focused on conversion, how people became elect exiles. And so when they obeyed the gospel, so there's your obedience to the Son, to Jesus Christ, they were sprinkled by Christ's blood, they were set apart for the holy purposes of God, and all this was in accordance with the Spirit and by the Spirit. And all this is according to the foreknowledge of God as well. For a similar Trinitarian conversion formula, which uses the exact same phrase, 
uh, here for through the sanctification by the Spirit, as my English standard words it. You can see 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, which also includes election, he chose you, and it also includes obedience to the gospel in those verses. So uh, Paul has that Trinitarian formula over there in 2 Thessalonians, and here's Peter, and it's showing up here in his uh, opening address to these uh, Christians in Asia Minor. Uh, so that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Okay, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what I see is that the sufferings which Peter's audience have experienced and continue to experience, that is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit will use their trials as an opportunity to further transform these Christians more into the image of Christ, which is the process of sanctification, right? So the Spirit's involved in that process. It's a spiritual process. Just like we saw in our podcast on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you can go back to the archives to see that, the Greek here for sanctification is hagiasmas, hagiasmas, which is the process of becoming sacred space. You are becoming a part of God's sanctuary, sanctification. These ideas flow well into the following comments that Peter will give about their faith being refined like gold in verse 7, and their new existence now as God's temple, living stones being built up, present tense, it's happening right now, it's sanctification, it's a process, being built up into a spiritual house for God, chapter 2, verse 5. So the sanctifying word of the Spirit, that's, that's the process that we're undergoing right now. The Spirit is involved in that process. And the Spirit's using their sufferings to accomplish that process. So verse 3, and well, verse 23 as well for that that matter, but we have this phrase, Nick, about being born again. So when and how did God cause them to be born again? Yeah, uh, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. That's a single word in the original language. Um, we were dead because of sin. Through the new birth, we were given new life. And this is the genesis of our salvation. And at some point in the past, because it is an aorist tense uh, participle, we were born again. And the aorist tense, by the way, is it is punctiliar. It is a, a point in time, a snapshot event in the past. And so, uh, by the new birth, God becomes the father of these Christians and all Christians. So what would that point be, that point in the past that unites all uh, Christians? I believe that point when they, uh, uh, a person is born again is baptism. It's immersion. That's the snapshot event in the past which unites all Christians. Right. And uh, so the verb form, that's what's used down in verse 23, but I believe that is talking about the same thing as well. Uh, that's the when. Alex, you want to talk for a moment about the, the how? Right. You've honed in on the when one born is born is <laughs> when one is born again, namely baptism. So I'm with you there. And the how God did this, I think is best seen in Colossians chapter two, verses eleven through twelve. How God did it is he circumcised our sin. He cut off that body of flesh in our baptism. That's the how. So baptism is not the work of man, but the work of God, in which we by faith receive the gift 
of regeneration. <clears throat> so, to be born again, that also implies a new humanity, a new creation, a new race fathered by a new Adam, and that's Christ. So, that's an important distinction to remember, is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and are immersed in water, what happens spiritually in that moment is the work of God. We may be physically putting our bodies in water, right? But spiritually, the work that is occurring in that moment, in real time, that's God's work. That's where he recreates you. And that's important to remember. So, Nick, verse 4. Peter says, we do have an inheritance. And he describes that inheritance. What do you think the inheritance actually is? Yeah, to an inheritance, it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Um, this is uh, the Christian's hope. The inheritance in heaven, it is uh, the eternal blessedness that we will enjoy with God, with Christ, in heaven. It is imperishable, not subject to death or decay. It is undefiled, unsoiled, free from impurity. It is unfading, that is pristine and brilliant. It's like a flower that never wilts. So when Peter says it is kept, uh, that is, or another translation says reserved, he's saying that God stored up his inheritance for the saints and continues. It continues to be there in heaven, ready for us. Uh, and so uh, that's the, the force of the tense that is used there by Peter when he says it's kept in heaven for you. So uh, uh, that's my take. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, you said like a flower that never wilts. I want the audience to keep that in mind when we get to verse 24. But verse 4 I think the inheritance Peter has in mind is our new bodies, and that's what we'll receive in the resurrection. Notice how the reward is not heaven itself, but if you read carefully, the reward is reserved for us in heaven. It's not heaven, it's reserved for us in heaven. So it naturally follows that if we have been spiritually regenerated, born again, verse 3, right? then one must wonder about these earthly bodies that we still wear. Second Peter calls them earthly tabernacles, right? Your earthly tent dwelling. These bodies, these bodies perish. These bodies can be defiled. These bodies fade away into dust. It is our new body, though, which will be imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. So the Christian hope is in our adoption as sons. Dipping into Romans 8 now, right? The receiving of an inheritance. Right? Receive Sons receive inheritance from their fathers, right? That will be our new bodies in the resurrection. Especially look at Romans 8, verse 23 through 25. That's our hope. That's our inheritance. That's our adoption. That's our new bodies in the resurrection. So, Nick, verses 5 and verses 9. Peter is going to talk about our salvation. But here in these two verses, he speaks of salvation as a, as a future prospect. He doesn't tell these Christians that they currently have salvation. 
So that seems strange. Why is that spoken of as a future prospect? Yeah, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the end of verse 5. And then uh, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls in, in verse 9. It's the now and the not yet. Uh, mm. When the last page of this world's history is written, the veil of this physical world is pulled back and gives way to the spiritual reality uh, at the last time. That's when our salvation will be finally and fully revealed or uncovered uh, to be enjoyed by the saints of God forever. And when Peter wrote, the salvation was ready. Uh, that is, it was right at the point of being revealed. That's, that's typical of how the New Testament authors talk about this salvation. Um, and while the salvation of your souls anticipates what is ready to be revealed in the last time, there's the present reality, the everyday experience of Christian growth and Christian life in the here and now as well. And so Peter in the very same breath as he describes the reserved inheritance that is kept in heaven, he points us right back to the here and now. God is guarding us. We are not yet calmly secure in heaven, but we are mightily guarded by God's power in the here and now. And uh, that uh, uh, kept by God's power, that indicates that we are continually guarded. Uh, when, we are, uh, when we were born into the kingdom of God, the protection began. It continues to this day uh, so long as we cooperate with God through faith uh, there in the middle of verse 5. So uh, that's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think what, I, what I'll add to that, right, is that uh, salvation, as I see it in First Peter, is spoken of in, in two aspects, and they complement each other. And this is James does the same thing. Paul does the same thing. This is a New Testament thing. So we should view salvation really as an umbrella term that covers both the beginning point of salvation, right? The moment of regeneration, the new birth, and salvation also covers the point which we will eventually arrive to. That is the finished product of sanctification. So salvation has a completed past tense point of reference, our new birth through God's work in baptism. And that point, that's a gift that's received by faith. But salvation also has an incomplete aspect, which continues to unfold in the present. And that point is both the work of the Spirit and the work of the Christian. Not received by faith, but rather lived out by faith, day by day. This is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Verse 9. So the formula, if we had to put it into an equation, is this. Salvation equals regeneration plus sanctification. It's both of those things together that make up the New Testament uh, theology of salvation. So, Nick, verse 6. Okay, it says that they've been grieved by various trials, if necessary. What would determine, do you think, if their trials were necessary or not? Yeah, if necessary seems to be Peter's way of saying, since this is God's will. And I, in fact, some translations read, though uh, you are being grieved by 
various trials, pointing to the fact that this, it's, it's the case. It, it is necessary. And we know that later in the book, you get to 4 verse 12, 5 verse 9, Peter will point to the reality of the persecution, which already has begun. 4 verse 12, uh, the fire trial, when it comes upon you to test you. Uh, and then 5 verse 9, the suffering that's being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, uh, yeah, I think there's uh, a better way of understanding this as, since it is uh, God's will, though you are, have been grieved by various trials, I think it is a reality in in their time, even as Peter's writing this. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Well, okay, I think major events which cause trial and suffering we can see both today and in the past they don't affect all people the same way these christians they are probably suffering to varying degrees right so let's say there are scores of christians forced to relocate because of the fires in rome this is history this is what happened overall that would be quite the ordeal for those christians however it may be harder on, let's say, the nursing mothers than for the young bachelors. I think what Peter's trying to acknowledge by saying, if necessary, is that though they all share in similar sufferings as Christians throughout the world, chapter 5, verse 9, each person's suffering is still unique to them, right? And their circumstances thus, if necessary, means because of each one's peculiar circumstance, they have been distressed by various trials so that's that's my reading of the text that this isn't a uh, uh, well that's my reading of the text <laughs> I'll just leave it there. okay verse 11 Nick Peter's going to talk about the prophets the spirit within them predicting the sufferings and glory of Christ and it calls the spirit the spirit of Christ now what do you think in verse 11 is the spirit of Christ? So uh, that Christ did have a spirit, a human spirit, I think is evident from um, Psalm 16 and Acts 2 uh, about uh, Christ. He would not be abandoned to Sheol, and that's the realm of disembodied spirits. But I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit, Um which is uh, the Holy Spirit's mentioned in the very next verse. Uh, he was mentioned earlier, back in verse 2. I think there's a kind of a parallel passage over in Second Peter 1 and verse 21 about the uh, holy men of God were moved by the, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Spirit of Christ, uh, Peter, we know, he, he read Paul. He says that in Second Peter chapter 3. And Therefore, I think he would have known that uh, one of the ways that Paul talks about the Holy Spirit is as the Spirit of Christ. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 9 is an example of that. So uh, my take here is this is the, the Holy Spirit uh, that is um, at work here in uh, these uh, prophets who prophesied. Uh, what do you think, Alex? So I did come across something interesting, and uh, this is... Definitely food for thought, something to just sort of hold on to, see if it pans out, right? See, see if it has explanatory power. But in my research for First Peter, I found an early church writer 
who wrote a whole commentary on First Peter. It's very short, right? It's not, it's not lots and lots of comments, but it, he is commenting on First Peter, and he's going through the whole letter as he has it. Uh, this guy's name was Clement of Alexandria, and he lived from 150 to 215 A.D. So when he gets to this passage in verse 11 about the prophets being inspired by the Spirit of Christ, Clement of Alexandria says that there are spirits who are possessed by, that is like owned by, right, under the, uh, under the authority of, and in subjection to Christ. So there are spirits who are possessed by and in subjection to Christ. And quote, For God works through archangels and kindred angels who are called spirits of Christ. So in scholarship, the view that angels or an angel is in mind when speaking of the spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit, that's called angelomorphic pneumatology. Angelomorphic pneumatology. And what that means is that every time you see the phrase spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, might not mean what you think it means. There's this thought that you can find in the early church that says that's talking about an angel. So from the time of, let's back up even a little bit earlier, the Apostolic Fathers, still 2nd century, we have another writing called the Shepherd of Hermas. And he's saying the same thing that Clement of Alexandria is saying. Uh, He is at times equating the Holy Spirit with an angelic spirit, especially if you look at his definition of inspiration in uh, Mandate 11, verse 9. And so there is some... There is something to this thread, right? It's like pulling on this thread, seeing what comes out. Well, turn to your New Testament. Angels as the intermediaries of inspired writings is what several New Testament passages have in mind. You go to Acts 7, verse 53, Galatians 3, verse 19. Both of those say that the law was ordained by angels. You go to Hebrews 2, 2. It says that the word was spoken through angels. So, What is the Spirit of Christ that was within these prophets, as Peter mentions here? I'm going to throw out there that he may have had an angel in mind. He may have thought that there were angels who guided the, the mind and the thoughts of these prophetic authors. So that is, that's a very interesting trajectory for how one would define Holy Spirit inspiration. But it's very it's fascinating to me. I'm going to keep exploring that trajectory, and I wanted to introduce it to our audience today. So there's another thing in verse 11, Nick. The spirit of the prophets predicted the sufferings and glories to follow of Christ. So can you think of any Old Testament passages where the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow? Yeah, Peter, he he doesn't specify uh, what they inquired. Uh, The word used here, also used by Jesus in reference to Scripture, John 5 and verse 39. So it seems reasonable the prophets searched uh, their writings or whatever other writings uh, they had in an attempt to know who and when the Holy Spirit was indicating and and pointing. And so the, the Hebrew Bible... Uh, our Old Testament. Uh, There are examples that I believe would be appropriate for understanding here about when 
He predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Uh, That would include Psalm 22, which does talk about the crucifixion. Uh, The words of that psalm found on the lips of Jesus as he is dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later in the psalm, you get to verses 6 through 8, 12 through uh, 15, and you do have very strong uh, parallels to what we know about crucifixion. Uh, And then you get to the end of that psalm, verses 30 and 31, and posterity will serve him. And so uh, you do have a resurrection motif that shows up at the end of uh, Psalm 22. I think also I mentioned it earlier, Psalm 16, which is quoted by Peter in Acts 2 and verse 30 uh, when he's preaching on, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and he says he specifically says in Acts 2.30 that David, being therefore a prophet, and he predicted that uh, Christ, the, the death of Christ, he would die and uh, he would descend into the Hadean realm, his, his uh, human spirit would. And of course, Isaiah 53, uh, that you do have uh, the, the suffering and death of the uh, servant, the suffering servant. Uh, see, especially verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 53. And then you do get the resurrection as well, where although he is crushed and put to death, uh, he will continue on. And uh, that's verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. Uh, how about an example of a, a prophet searching, inquiring of the scriptures? I think that would be Daniel uh, in verse uh, 9. And, and whether he was. Uh, reading the book of Jeremiah to glean some idea of Christ. It's not mentioned, but he is reading Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's work in Daniel uh, 9, verse 2. Uh, could he have been reading Jeremiah to better understand the person and time of Christ, but mm. then discovered something else during his Bible study? And, and doesn't that happen during our Bible studies, right? We'll be reading right along, maybe even have some subject which we are diligently trying to better understand, only to uncover some other hidden gem from Scripture. That's the beauty of Bible study. And diligent listener, I want to encourage you to be reading, to be searching and inquiring of Scripture on a daily basis. So uh, those are some examples what I found. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I like that. I like the um, the last part you there about how that's the joy of Bible study. I've had, you know, I think lots of people have had that experience. Well, you, you mentioned Isaiah 53. That's certainly one example Peter has in mind because he's going to lift parts of Isaiah 53 out of that passage and he'll use it in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25. Um, circling back to your first answer, right, about the scriptures. Jesus uses the phrase scriptures sometimes when he's not thinking of a specific passage. Uh, if you go to Matthew 26 verses 51 through 54, Jesus rebukes Peter for cutting off Malchus's ear. Now, we don't know it's Peter or that it's Malchus from, from Matthew. We get that from John. But he says, Jesus says, How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? So it is a fulfillment of scripture that Jesus suffer and die. He doesn't reference a specific scripture or even a set of scriptures. And here's, here's the thing. There's something that has sort of revolutionized the way I view fulfillment of Scripture. When we understand how perhaps a first century Jew 
would understand the term fulfillment, right? Jews didn't always mean predictive prophecy. New Testament writers didn't always mean predictive prophecy when they used the word fulfillment. Much of prophecy is fulfilled in a typological manner, meaning that these Jews, these first century believers, these New Testament authors, as they record it, they were looking for someone who would be typologically the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, the new Daniel, and would reenact and take to a greater level a new creation, a new exodus, a new Israel. So typological fulfillment It opens up the entire history of people and events from the Old Testament that can be fulfilled by Jesus through reenactment. And so this this will help you make sense out of some of those passages that say this was to fulfill blank, right? But you go back to that verse that says it was to fulfill this. That verse that they're quoting is rarely predictive prophecy. It's actually typological. And so fulfillment of scripture includes typological fulfillment by Jesus reenacting these things that prophets and heroes and patriarchs did and events that occurred by God's working on behalf of Israel's benefit. So Jesus comes along and he does the same thing. And that's how we're supposed to read the gospels. You know, you get to Jesus feeding the multitudes with bread. You're supposed to think about how that's a reenactment of God sending manna from heaven to feed his people in the wilderness. So that's that's my gem, right? My gem I discovered about prophetic fulfillment. <laughs> so verse 11 again. There's a lot of things in verse 11. So here's another thing in verse yeah. 11. Why do angels long to look? That's present tense, by the way. At what has been announced to Peter's audience. That's the first part. Second part is, are there still mysteries then left unfulfilled if they are presently longing to look? And the third part is, are these good or bad angels who are longing to look? Kind of digging up the motivation for why they're looking. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, so throughout the law, angelic beings had ringside seats to what God was doing. You had cherubim in the Holy of Holies, according to Exodus 25, 20, and 21. You had seraphim in the heavenly temple, Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 2. Peter says that these angelic beings, they still long to look into how God's grace is demonstrated in Christ's sufferings and glories in relation to the salvation of souls. This is a present tense thing, even as Peter is writing this, and I think even to today, they still long to look into these things. I think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, that the mystery of godliness was seen by angels. When Christ stepped onto the grand stage of human history, every angelic eye was fixed on his every move, his birth, his childhood, adolescence, his youth, his temptations, his ministry, his miracles, his sermons, his trials, his torture, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. All the while, the angels watch with rapt attention the great facts of the history of redemption. And even now, the angels still delight to contemplate the advance of the kingdom. They long to look into these things. You can connect this with what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 12, in which the 
mystery of God's purpose, hidden for ages, is now made manifest through Christ and the church. These rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are fixated on the grand human drama. Every created being in the spiritual realm is watching what God is doing in the church, being enlightened concerning his work in human redemption or being frustrated by uh, what they see if they're on the bad side. Uh, Giving God glory at his wisdom and uh, that he is rich in mercy and rich in grace or else being chagrined that he is so gracious and so merciful that he would allow human beings to be saved. And while the church's responsibility is to evangelize the world, the emphasis in uh, Ephesians 3 in particular is on the spiritual realm about these created angelic beings. And here Peter says, yeah, they they still long to look into these things. Uh, So that's my take on it. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think the longing being in present tense really couldn't refer to things that have already happened, right? So the gospel's already happened. Jesus's uh, life, death, burial, resurrection has already happened. The church has already begun. So what is it that they are presently longing to look into? So to me, it points towards things that are still unfolding, things that have yet to come. And I'm going to see it from the perspective of the bad angels, This is what I think Peter has in mind. But I'm going to answer the question sort of in reverse, right? We had this three-part question. I'm going to do it from backwards forward. So regarding whether these angels are good or bad, makes more sense to me that these are bad angels who are longing to look into the things pronounced by the gospel preachers through the Holy Spirit. Consider 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, which says, The rulers of this age did not understand God's mystery and wisdom. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. I believe these are spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms who were disarmed, by the way, by the power of Christ's crucifixion. That's Colossians 2.15. That's why they are passing away, 1 Corinthians 2.6. Every conversion to Christ transfers one out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus, Colossians 1.13. The bad angels can do nothing to reverse what Christ did on the cross, and they sorely wish they hadn't killed him because in doing so, it sealed their own judgment and eventual destruction. So, middle question, right? Are their mysteries still left unfulfilled? I say yes. Inasmuch as Christ has not returned yet, there are still things which have yet to find their fulfillment. Did you think that the forces of darkness would go down without a fight, without trying to slow their spiritual attrition? Of course not. The New Testament has spoken of Christ's return, of the resurrection, of the judgment of fire, of the new heaven and new earth. And these bad angels, I think they long to look into these things. Why? Because they want to slow it down. They want to take as many down with them as possible. But God, he waits patiently. He is desiring more people to be saved. 2 Peter 3, right? This is spiritual warfare, the battle for the souls of humanity. And it's actually the next verse, verse 13 of 1 Peter 1, that tips me in the direction of seeing these angels as bad angels. Because if they were bad, 
the next logical thing to tell the audience is to prepare for battle, right? Peter's going to say, gird up the loins of your mind. Some translations say, prepare your minds for action. So let's talk about that for a second. Verse 13, Nick, why are they told to prepare their minds for action? Yeah, uh, literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Um, that's a phrase that I think is probably lost on most modern readers, but it, it was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, in their culture, they wore uh, long robes, and in order to engage in vigorous activity, such as running or even fast walking, the robes would have been pulled up into their belt, uh, allowing them freedom of motion. And in modern English, we might say something like, all right, roll up your sleeves, right? And and that's the idea of you got to get ready to put in some work here. That's what Peter is telling his audience. Get ready for intense mental activity, right? Because the emphasis is on your minds. Specifically, sober-mindedness and focusing on future hope. Those are the mental activities Peter wants his audience prepared for. And sober-mindedness is not merely abstinence from alcohol, but also don't let your mind wander to other mental intoxicants or mental addictions. And listen, there are a lot of mental addictions today. Yeah. Uh, 24-hour news cycle, social media, on demand at your fingertips. Uh, These things, I believe, are the modern-day futile ways that can be inherited from former generations, and we'll talk about that when we get to verse 18 in more detail. But Peter combines both the now and the not yet aspect of our grace here, uh, that we do have grace and that there's more to come. First, he says that we are to hope fully on the grace uh, that we have. That is, we are to have a very strong, confident expectation of grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to his return when grace will be fully realized, but also uh, the grace that will be brought to you. It already ha- it, it is being brought to you. Uh, it's a, uh, another present participle here. So grace is already on the way. Uh, indeed, the immeasurable riches of his grace are ours in Christ Jesus. This is Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 7. And yet, there's still more to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is, this is a beautiful passage about uh, what we are called to do as Christians, what the, Christ, the normal Christian life should look like. So uh, that's a bit of what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, prepare your minds for action. Not every thought is your own. That's the title of a sermon I once preached. Uh, Nick, you're a Stephen King fan, right? What was his definition of writing? Telepathy. Telepathy. That's right. He takes a thought in his mind, and he puts it in your mind. In between are pieces of paper with ink on them. Our thoughts on paper with ink, is that what thoughts are? Are, are paper and ink thoughts? Are, are thoughts vibrations of air? No, I don't think so. Thoughts are spiritual. It stands to reason that A spiritual being can operate in the realm of thoughts without the need of paper or sound. Where is the battle? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, the battle is in your mind. Perhaps uh, thoughts of self-harm and degradation, perhaps those are not thoughts coming from you. 
not from you at all. Not every thought is your own. So let me, let me clarify. I don't believe spirits, good or bad, whichever one you're talking about, I don't believe they can control your mind or even read your mind. But I do believe that they can drop thoughts into your mind. And that's why we have to be sober-minded. We have to prepare our mind for action so that when those thoughts crop up, we can take them captive for Christ, right? Again, 2 Corinthians 10. Now, of course, there are, I like what you said, uh, there are other uh, intoxicants that can attack your mind. And I like the examples you listed. Of course, there are creative works which wage war on your mind, right? Movies, shows, books, websites. Uh, Who created those works? Humans? Okay. And what may be inspiring these works? I suggest that when you take a careful look into the fruit of these creations, you may get your answer as to whether they are inspired by human agency or something more than human agency. So when Peter says, be sober, which is a broad command in the New Testament, by the way, it's, it's mentioned several times, and Peter will mention it at least three times. That's a serious command. Prepare your mind is not just a catchy slogan or catchphrase. That, that, is, that is literally the realm in which the battle takes place. It is in your mind. And Nick, you mentioned what goes along with that. Right, focusing on the grace to be revealed or to be given us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you clarify what is the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse thirteen? Yeah, that's that's when Jesus returns. And and this is typical for Peter and other New Testament writers, the the imminence of Christ's return. It was for them, they were right on the doorstep. That's and, and that was how they lived, and I think that's instructive for how we ought to live as well. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think that's right. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's a big theme here in First Peter 1. In verse 5, our salvation is, quote, revealed in the last time. In verse 7, praise, glory, and honor will be, future tense, will be at the revelation, quote, of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, that's when we receive the outcome, again, that's future, of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And now in verse 13, we find grace will be brought to us at the, quote, revelation of of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is when Christ returns, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8, if you want to go back there, it will also be the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Okay, verses 15 through 16, Nick. Uh, Peter says, Be holy in all that you do, as the Holy One has called you. Then he quotes Leviticus. Talk to us for a minute, Nick. What does it mean to be holy? Only God is holy, says Scripture, Revelation 15 and verse 4. That is, there is none holy like Yahweh, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2. He is the Holy One. That's a phrase used to describe God a myriad of times in the Old Testament. In fact, God's holiness is the single quality which is used to describe his other attributes, his justice is holy, Isaiah 5 and verse 13, his name is holy, Leviticus 20 verse 3, 22 verse 2, and elsewhere. Even his spirit is holy, right? The Holy Spirit. Holiness is inherent uh, to the essence of deity. 
Holy is the only attribute used to describe God in a threefold matter, uh, manner. Holy, holy, holy in Isaiah chapter 6. It denotes that God is separate from, even other than, all that we know uh, in this present realm. In his majesty, in his glory, he's altogether other. Uh, in other words, he's completely different than anything we have known or experienced in this cosmos. He is altogether other. Not merely set apart or separate. He is other. And since God is other, he is beyond our finite comprehension. And yet, he has revealed himself and offered us the opportunity for relationship with him. And that is the connection here. Christians are called to be holy. All our conduct here, that phrase, all that you do, that captures every thought and every action of every day. This is a call for total holiness, inward and outward conformity to the pattern of holiness, which is God himself. The impetus for our holy conduct is the holiness of God. You shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. And similarly, God's holy moral character is the reason there are moral absolutes. Why there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, and they are always right or they are always wrong. Look no further than the holiness of God as to why that is. He delights in those things which reflect his holiness, his moral character. He hates those things which are opposed to his holiness. Uh, so uh, that's what I think of when I think about the, the idea of holiness. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, and I, I think you had a, a lot of good things to say about God's holiness. And um, to touch on a little bit what it means for us to be holy, Holy in the Greek is hagios, and that harkens back to verse 2, where the work of the Spirit is to make us holy. That's the process of sanctification, the Greek hagiosmos. Our sanctification is the process by which we are made to be more like the Holy One who has called us. That's our transformation, our completion as God's holy temple. And we could relate this to being made in the image of God, that original perfect image which mirrored its creator. Now, born again for us in Christ Jesus, uh, the image in us now that is growing within us, uh, relating us to be kind of like a spiritual baby. We need to grow up into spiritual adulthood. Peter will touch on that in chapter 2, verse 2. But Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 12 as well, talking about the growing up of the church, going from immaturity to maturity. To be holy is to be like God, who has been perfectly revealed through the unique Son, Jesus Christ. That's John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. To be like Christ is to be like his Father. So the practical implications of that then for Peter's audience, that will be elaborated more upon in chapters 2 through 5. But for now... Peter lays the theological foundation as a preface to his commands. He's getting there. He's getting there. And we'll get there, too. Thanks for hanging in there, diligent listener. So, Nick, verse 17 says that God judges our works. Why does God judge our works? That makes me nervous, Nick. I thought we were <laughs> judged by faith. Yeah, verse, verse 17 begins, and if, in my English standard, but it can and probably should be translated, and since you call on him as father. Because 
This is a continuation of what Peter has been saying. And no doubt these Christians do call the impartial judge of all father. God called them to be obedient children, so they call him father. But he is also he who judges, and this is a uh, a present participle, present tense thing, more accurately, he is the one judging. So in view is, is not final judgment, although you can go elsewhere in Scripture to find where that's talked about, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for example. But the idea Peter expresses here is that God is presently weighing our actions and our thoughts without prejudice or favoritism, impartially, literally not receiving the face. And it's, he, he is doing that to each one's deeds, our work. And I believe that summarizes all of our actions and, of course, actions stimulated by thoughts, and God knows all those as well. Uh, so uh, that is, I believe, what's going on here with God judging us on our works, and he does it even in the here and the now. Uh, so uh, what do you think, Alex? Faith without works is dead, right? Go back and listen to our podcast on James chapter 2 for a more thorough explanation. But God, our Father, judges our works both now and and at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's, that, here's how that relates to Peter's audience. Enduring trial and suffering, that's a good work. Overcoming temptation to fall into old habits and old groups during times of stress, that's a good work. Serving others in the midst of your own trial, that is a good work. Peter already prefaced these statements with the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't take this statement as a browbeating session, okay? That's not what Peter's getting at. But the life of a Christian is a serious trial, especially for the persecuted Christians reading this letter. The work of suffering is portrayed here as a holy thing, a sacred suffering, or a suffering unto sanctification. And that's a good way of framing one's perilous situation in the face of death, right? Don't think, I'm suffering to death. Rather think, I'm suffering to sanctification. That's where this is heading. And that's where Peter wants their minds at in the midst of their trials. Prepare your minds. So verse 18, Nick, how did Peter's audience inherit a futile life from their forefathers? They were born into it. Uh, this, this is what I see here. These, these Christians were formerly slaves of the empty and useless lifestyle passed down to them by their ancestors. Formerly emphasis uh, there on, on that. These futile ways, these are the hereditary chains of sin which are passed down and bind generation after generation. Later on in chapter 4, in verse 3, Peter will talk about what the, uh, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, parties and lawless idolatry. Uh, and so these are the empty forms of lifestyles, and they are void of any real and significant meaning. And so uh, what would it sound like today? Well, maybe the hereditary chain of partying. The hereditary chain of drinking, the hereditary chain of smoking, the hereditary chain of 
drug abuse, the hereditary chain of pride, the hereditary chain of anger, the hereditary chain of foul language, the hereditary chain of hatred, hereditary chain of worthlessness. These are still real chains that can bind people today. These are still the futile ways that are inherited from those who have gone before us. But here's the good news. These hereditary chains of sin are broken by the blood of Christ. Christ's blood and only Christ's blood can break all of these chains. The first century audience to whom Peter was writing, they knew it, and we can know it today. Had it not been for God and the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we would still be in bondage to that former futile lifestyle. But God and Christ, they change lives. They really do. They really do. And and that is the emphasis here of being ransomed. You were bought back. That's marketplace language. Christ stepped into the marketplace of the world and purchased for himself a people, and he freed us from those hereditary chains uh, that we inherited. So uh, that's my take here, what I see. Alex, what do you think? Well, I have a little different take. My take is that this is a reference to idolatry. So, in the Old Testament, inheritance language, Peter says, you've inherited this futile way of life from your forefathers. In the Old Testament, inheritance language is strong when describing the nations. Israel's inheritance is Yahweh, and Yahweh's inheritance nation is Israel. But the other nations, they have inherited the sun and the moon and the stars as their gods. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 20 lays that out. And when did this inheritance take place for the nations? It took place when God divided up mankind in the days of old. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, especially in the ESV or the Dead Sea Scrolls, read that. Well, when, when did God divide up mankind? Hmm, there seems to be a story that talks about God dividing everybody. Oh yeah, Babel, right? Was Israel at Babel? No. God created Israel out of nothing, which is what Abraham and Sarah were, since they couldn't have children. With Yahweh's people then, his image is represented by living human beings. We bear his name. We bear his image. With the nations, though, their gods have images represented by idols fashioned from gold and silver. And thus, Peter says here in uh, verse 18 that they weren't redeemed by these perishable images of the gods inherited by their forefathers. That's what I think he means by silver and gold. But rather with the precious blood of Christ. Now think about Christ. He is the perfect image of Yahweh God, the Father. So the ways of life were not found in these other gods. Otherwise, these gods would not have been judged for being evil. Go back and read Psalm 82. But Yahweh God, he wrapped himself up in human flesh, showed us the way, the truth, and the life, and gave himself up for us so that we might live. So that's the, that's the approach that I'm taking to verse 18. Now in verse 20... After he says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So Nick, talk to us for a second. What does it mean that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world in verse 20? 
Ah, that old chestnut again, huh? (laughs) Foreknowledge. Well, okay, so as I mentioned uh, earlier, God knows everything, and such knowledge extends to all things future. And to paraphrase uh, C.S. Lewis, whatever people have believed about God, they have at least believed God knows what will happen tomorrow, and I would extend that to next week, next month, next year, next whenever. So, The knowledge of all finite, time-bound things is not limited or hindered for the eternal God who is before time and above time. Uh, If God does not know the future, then there was a time when God was ignorant of most things in the world, and that simply will not do because God knows everything and, and no one can teach God knowledge. This is uh, what Job asks in Job twenty one twenty two, will any teach God knowledge? He assumes a reply in the negative. And so, if the future, let's add to this, if the future is merely something God desires to know, waiting in anticipation to see what his creatures will do, then that would put him on the same level as the angelic creatures he has made. Perhaps he himself is an angel also because they also long to look into these things, as we've already covered back in verse 12. So, like the past, like the present, and everything else, the future is dependent upon God's will. Nothing can exist apart from the will of God. Future events will exist according to the will of God. Therefore, God knows what is yet future, since those things will exist according to his will. It simply will not follow that God does not know his own will. Now, as it pertains to Christ, before time existed, in eternity, God knew that humans would sin, they would rupture their relationship relationship with him, they would need to be ransomed, to use the language Peter uses here. And so the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they determined their respective roles in the grand plan to redeem humans. This included God the Son's role as the executor of God's will as atonement. So Christ the Son was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, To paraphrase Revelation 13, verse 8, it was the plan before time began. And as it pertains to Peter's argument here in 1 Peter 1, before history existed, God foreknew and determined that Christians, these elect exiles, would be ransomed by the blood of Christ. And so therefore, like the atonement, the holy lives these Christians should live was no afterthought. Indeed, Christ appeared in history for their sake. So Peter's statement here, by the way, is in agreement with Peter's statement on Pentecost when in Acts 2 and verse 23, he proclaimed Christ as delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in addition, not only was the Son foreknown before the foundation of the world, he was also loved by the Father before the foundation of the world, John 17, verse 24. And he also had divine glory before the foundation of the world, John 17 and verse 5. So uh, that's a bit of what I see here with this foreknowledge business uh, as it relates to Christ. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Okay, so I have a different perspective. I disagree with, with many conclusions that you came to. So that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, I think, is a clear statement of his divinity, right? That's what Peter has in mind. Think John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that's that foreknown 
element of Christ. If he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, then that means he existed as the Logos, as God with God before the foundation of the world. Now, Peter follows up and says that Christ appeared in these last times for our sake, and that's a statement of his incarnation. So think of John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the fullness of grace and truth. So Peter has both elements here, the divinity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That statement not only brings John's readers back to the opening prologue of his gospel, but also to the opening prologue of Genesis. Just like when Christ, the Logos, existed in glory with the Father before he creates heaven and earth, now, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he will be glorified again. He'll return to the Father in glory, having accomplished a new creation, the new humanity. Think John 1, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. Looking at 1 Peter, technically Peter doesn't say that Christ's sacrifice was known before the foundation of the world, just that Christ himself was known. It's not unrelated to him being the sacrificial lamb in these last times, but the main thought seems to be that the Creator took on human flesh to redeem his creation. Now, Revelation 13.8 doesn't help answer the question either, for that verse says that it is the book of life that has existed since the foundation of the world, and that book belongs to the lamb that was slain. But it doesn't say the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, it may have been in God's mind to sacrifice himself for his creation before starting the creation process, but we simply don't know that one way or the other. Now, the fact that at some point in time, God decided to sacrifice himself to redeem his creation, that is clear. Acts 2.23, I think that's a good point of reference. Jesus being handed over to die, that was in the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. Now, God does not know all future things, but he can still plan and determine things that cannot be thwarted. Here comes the analogy of the grand chess master, who doesn't fear not knowing his opponent's moves ahead of time. Whether it's in three moves or 300 moves, the grand master will win. This idea translates well into God's predictive prophecy. There are events in the future that God knows he can accomplish. Otherwise, he wouldn't make the promise. But the road to those events is less like a road at all and more like an open plain, not paved by any road, but a blank slate open to the possibility of many different paths that could appear. But the final destination of certain events remains the same. Think Matthew 24 verse 20, right? Where Jesus talks about the end. I think he's talking about the end of Jerusalem, but in either case, he says, pray that it will not come in winter. For that would be difficult for the nursing mothers and the pregnant women. So Jesus doesn't say the, the end event is not going to happen. But he does say pray about the timing of that event. So that shows you the timing of certain things is not settled. It's not set in stone. It's not foreknown. The event itself is, but the road and the timing up to that event is not. It's open. 
I guess according to C.S. Lewis, I, I must not know God, since I believe God doesn't always know exactly what will happen, but rather he waits to see how his free-willed creation will respond. But what C.S. Lewis would believe about me, that's his opinion. And it's irrelevant to me in my study of the Bible. There's much more, I think, that could be said about this topic that needs to be said, and we will have to come back to it in future podcasts. But I will say that I don't believe God lives outside of time, because that's part of this conversation too. Time is not a created thing like the clouds or the trees. It's not something that you would be inside of or outside of or be bound by or any such thing like that. That's something that I think has led to certain, certain conclusions. Time is neither a particle nor a wave. People have a very difficult time just defining what time is. And so if you have a difficult time defining time in the first place, what makes you think you know what outside of time is or timelessness is? And then you take that and you filter God through it. Time is simply a description of matter moving through space, just like temperature. Temperature is not a thing. It's a description, a description of matter, not the matter itself. God does not live outside of time. Time is not a created thing. And God doesn't always know what will happen. But instead of leaving you with a panic attack, because I know this is a, a scary thought for some, let me phrase it with a little more beauty. God truly exists in the present with us. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He foresees all current possibilities, but not all certainties. He stands by our side, ready to guide us through each and every possible scenario, upon which he exercises his inexhaustible intelligence to perfectly provide for the needs of any given moment. Now that image... That can be no more than allegory with a God living outside of time. But as I see it, that image is reality. Temporal reality. It's not allegory. It's real. And it gives me far more comfort during times of trial and far more motivation to get on my knees and pray. Because the prayers really do direct the future. The unknown future full of possibilities. Verse 21. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, well, did you want a sword play? Uh, I mean, it's it's open. You can you can say more things. I know we're I know we're running an hour twenty two, right? Yeah. So Appreciate you, diligent listener, sticking with us. All that's right. right. Uh, then let's uh, yeah, let's move on then. <clears throat> because you you said it. You're exactly right. There's a lot more that can be said about that, and we are going to come back to it. Verse 21 talks about uh, your faith and hope are in God, right? Uh, Alex, talk for a second about in what regard is our faith and hope in God? Yeah, I think Peter's talking about the resurrection in verse 21. So our faith and hope is that God will raise us from the dead and clothe us with immortal bodies. Since this happened with Christ, we believe that through faith in Christ, God will do the same thing for us. That is idea is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's going back to verse 3. So our faith and hope are in God to raise us from the dead, give us new bodies. Nick, what does it mean in verse 22 that they have purified their souls? 
Yeah, having uh, purified is used here to, uh, it's used in a spiritual sense, to indicate consecration to God's service. Their, their souls, having been purified, their souls, that's their whole persons. They are set apart for service unto God. And, and purification happens in obedience to the truth and is for a sincere, literally unhypocritical, sincere brotherly love. And we actually get our, uh, well, the name of the city, right? Philadelphia from the term there for brotherly love. So Peter's focus is on the rationale behind love. They love their siblings because they have purified their souls by obeying the truth. And Peter's first specific application of his command to live a holy life is for Christians to love one another. So this is the first mark of genuine Christians who are in pursuit of holiness, this deep, earnest love for their fellow Christians. This is a testimony to the power of the gospel. Even the most hard-hearted individual might have their affections changed dramatically and permanently having their souls purified, uh, as, uh, as Peter discusses here. So uh, that's what I see here in, in verse 22. Well, I agree with that. That's, that's well put. And I like that picture, too, how you can see in the, in the most hard-hearted person this softening, this renewal that brings them to a place where they can exercise that true godly love to their, uh, to their fellow man, to their fellow brother and sister in Christ. So, Nick, talk to us about verse 23. This is our last question before the featured creature. What is the living and enduring word of God? Yeah, it's the eternal word of the eternal God. This is the, the, so the timelessness, the supratemporality of the word is seen in that it is living and abiding, but it's also seen in the words of Christ in the Gospels recorded in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31, Luke 21, 33. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will, no, not never pass away. That's bad English, but good Greek, because that's how, what, how it literally reads. It's a triple negative there. So uh, that's the timelessness of this living and enduring word of God. Uh, that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? I think the living and enduring word of God, that word is Jesus. I think we're to have Jesus in mind. Jesus uh, when he was when when Jesus was preached to them, right? The, the people who preached the gospel to Peter's audience, they preached Jesus. The audience to whom they preached, they received the gospel message, and they came to love Jesus and to believe in Jesus, even though they had never seen Jesus for themselves, right? Verse eight. So Jesus is the Word which spoke all things into being, Genesis one, but also John. 1 3. And now Jesus, the Word, speaks through the apostolic testimony. And when we receive that, it brings us into being as new beings, recreated beings, eternal beings that will not be born, multiply, and then die over and over again, like, like the grass and the flowers that Peter quotes here in verse um, 24 but will one day receive our inheritance, our eternal bodies that are fitting to the regenerated slash purified soul that we now have inside of us. So that's my take. That's my view of, of the living and enduring word. 
it's uh it is that supernatural uh creative power and mind which jesus exercised in creation and in the new creation for the christian so nick that brings us to our featured creature featured creature and today's featured creature is michael michael the archangel so why don't you tell us about michael the archangel yeah, Michael is one of only two angels mentioned by name in Scripture, the other being Gabriel. His name means, who is like God? He is mentioned four times total in Scripture, Daniel 10, verse 13, also verse 21, Daniel 12, verse 1, uh, Jude 9, and Matthew, or excuse me, Revelation 12, and verse 7. Michael is one of the chief princes. He is called the great prince uh, in uh, Daniel. This seems to correspond to the title that's used for him in the New Testament, Archangel, as Jude styles him in Jude verse 9. Taken together, the data indicates that Michael is one of an unspecified number of chief angels, having charge over his angels, as they're called in Revelation 12 verse 7. He serves as a guardian for Israel. Uh, That's why he's called your prince in Daniel 10 and verse 21. And this concept of guardian of Israel uh, continued into the intertestamental era that's reflected in the Qumranic literature, for example, in the community rule, where he is styled the uh, Prince of Light, and also in the War Scroll, where he suckers and enlightens the children of Israel. One of Michael's primary functions is to meet and overcome spiritual contestants. In Daniel, Michael comes to the aid of an unnamed angel who struggles against the prince of Persia, powerful territorial spiritual entity. That unnamed angel had fought for 21 days, couldn't overcome him, and so Michael, who appears to be superior to the anonymous angel, apparently easily defeated the threat so that the angelic interpreter could reveal the vision to Daniel. In Jude, Michael disputes with the devil for Moses' body, And then in Revelation 12, Michael and his archangels overwhelm and banish from heaven the devil and his angels. Uh, In addition, in pop culture, Michael the Archangel has been featured in such movies as Michael starring John Travolta and Legion starring Paul Bettany. So that's a bit of what I found about Michael. Uh, Alex, what did you find? That's right. John Travolta's Michael is a... Is a drinking, smoking, cussing, farting angel, so <laughs> who has to be taken cross country on a little road trip. So uh yeah, no blasphemy there at all, is there? Yeah. So, uh Michael the Archangel. Okay, well Jude Jude understands how many archangels that exist, uh, since he's in the habit of reading and quoting from Enoch. So turn in your Ethiopian Bibles and open to first Enoch chapter twenty, and you'll see that there are seven archangels and each one has a job description michael's job is to oversee the righteous of all humanity he is guardian angel par excellence and though there are seven archangels four of those seven are distinguished by appearing together before the throne of god and in other various scenes from first enoch and qumran literature the four being Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, who is sometimes called Sariel or Fanuel. At any rate, these four are commissioned to be the ones to throw Satan and his angels into the fiery furnace on the day of judgment, 1 Enoch 54, verse 6. 
As we saw in our episode on Tobit, there are seven angels who present the prayers of the saints and enter before the glory of the Holy One. Tobit chapter 12 verse 5. Michael is one of those seven. First Enoch chapter 40 verse 9 describes Michael as merciful and forbearing. In Jewish tradition, the devil tried to claim that Moses did not deserve an honorable burial since he had murdered the Egyptian soldier. But Michael is said to have buried Moses' body anyway. And that's the, uh, perhaps, reference that Jude makes to Moses and the devil disputing. This tradition also holds that Michael is at times responsible for transporting the righteous soul to its dwelling place among the disembodied, whether they call it Abraham's bosom or paradise, uh, what have you. Michael also acts as Enoch's angelic tour guide as he passes through certain visions and heavenly places in the book of 1 Enoch. So, imagine an angel that is stronger than Thor, kinder than Captain America, and more clever than Tony Stark, and there you have Michael the Archangel, the true avenger of righteous humanity. <laughs> And that's our future creature. Cue Avenger theme music. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, that was uh, a lot of information. You know, this is is a longer episode, but 1 Peter 1 was just packed with too much. We couldn't, couldn't pass it up. Yeah, and you spend a half hour on divine foreknowledge like we did. (laughs) (laughs) But from time to time, that's what happens. And uh, I imagine that if you're a listener of the podcast, uh, you're not here because you want uh, quick sound bites, right? You want the deep stuff. So thanks for tuning in for the deep stuff. Nick, what can our audience do to help the podcast? They can go into uh, the Apple Podcast Store, uh, and at least for right now, before I think it transfers to YouTube Music, the Google Play Music Store, search Swordplay, you'll find the podcast in those respective places. You can download them to your particular device. Leave a review, not just the stars, but also if you can, if you're willing, type out uh, a few words. That'll help boost the rating and... Uh, really promote the podcast in that way. You can share it on social media as well if you are so inclined. If folks have a question, Alex, where can they send it? Send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We hope you're enjoying our series on First Peter, and next time we'll jump into Chapter 2. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.